Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. The spy who came in from the cold is over. Now make him wash his hands a good 20 seconds. We have to live without sympathy, don't we? We can't do that forever. One can't stay out of doors all the time. One needs to come in. In from the cold. My name's Smiley. I live here. You ought to think about the evidence we've cooked up to incriminate Mund. To incriminate him so lethally that his own second-in-command will arrest him and have him shot. So I'm to defect. They'll interrogate you, of course. And bit by bit, you'll come across with the evidence that'll kill Mund. You did it, didn't you? Your people leaked it in London. You want to get me out of Holland in some cozy workers' paradise where you can keep me safe and warm? I don't want that. Just who the hell do you think you are? How dare you come stepping in here like Napoleon ordering me about? You are a traitor, does it occur to you? A wanted, spent, dishonest man, the lowest currency of the Cold War. Andy, we're starting a new series tonight. I'm very excited about it. We are. We're kicking off our John Lacare series, which will be... Fun to talk about. A lot of spies. A lot of John uh, Lacare. Yeah. Here's John the Lacare, thing. Yes. John Lacare. Let's get this out in the open up front. You have just corrected me on the pronunciation of his name. I'm sure I'm not alone. I it was is not saying Jean it wrong Lacare. as of last week. <laughs> so yeah. I, I figured it out between then and now. It's not John Lacare and, where the accent would be because there's an accent. Right. It's John Lacare. Right. Yes, that's exactly what our challenge is. And so we've I, I think we've decided collectively that it's not even John Lacare, it's Jolaka. Right. Jolaka. Just like uh Joseph Gordon Levitt became Jogelet. This is Jolaka. So now that we've got that resolved, that yes. Jolaka thing, now we can start talking about the meat of the spy well, who came in. I, since we're talking about Jolaka, we may as well get this all out of out of the way. He his okay. his birth name is David John Moore Cornwell, and uh, as you may know from research, he actually worked for MI6 and worked as a spy in the espionage business. And when he started writing novels, um, his his first two novels, I think, uh, well, actually, they he they were the Foreign Office required that he use a pseudonym because uh, since he was publishing, he was required to do that um, and not use his own name. So he decided to use Le Carre, which I guess is French for the square. That was his, uh, that's how he kind of came up with the name, Jean Le Carre. So John the square? John the square. I don't know why. I'm not sure what that, he was shooting for with that. I don't know either. He is a spy. He is a spy. And this is a spy story. Um, did you did, did you like it? Do you like this one? Oh, I love this one. This is, I you know, I feel like this might actually have been my first, uh, uh, my kind of entrance into Jean Le Carre stories, which I have grown to really love because of the complexity with uh, which he weaves these these tales and the way that there is a lot of intrigue. And it's a world of spies that you don't see in James Bond. It's, you know, feels very real, very gritty very uh kind of uh tough grounded in reality i really uh, just i enjoy this one quite a bit 
I I think this one, I mean, it, it lays all of its cards out on the table in the in in sort of the final speech, right? The kind of getaway. And that I think really cements this film's worldview on, um, you know, why we have spies, why we have espionage, why does all of this exist, uh, and and why we care, right? It's this whole speech on, you know, these are just children with toys and playing with lives, but they're they're just children there, and and uh, he is. This this is one of those movies that comes with a sense of hopelessness. What we get with James Bond and and the like is that that sense of um you know thank god the spies are here because they're going to help us get to the other side of this insurmountable problem and stop these rockets from launching and then everybody will be fine and in this movie everybody is not fine it, i i think i i think i would struggle to say if anybody in the movie is fine <laughs> level i think there are, no one in the movie is fine uh, well i would argue nan uh, is set up as being fine largely to a certain extent right. but i think that all that right. goes to kind of a lot of the questions the big questions with this story yeah. and the the film you know and i i jotted some of them down and i the first one is really you know what is the story talking about when it comes to people's and their ideologies versus morality and i think it's interesting to see all of these spies, not just at Lemus's level, but all the way up to Control's level. You know, do they actually care about what is right anymore, about the morality of things? Or is it, is there a point where it just becomes about a game of winning? And, uh, you know, both sides always seem to be just trying to justify the loss of an innocent lives. And so it's yeah. like, do they care? I mean, they, they seem to care about their ideology, um, but more than, what's right and i think that's an interesting line that we get here and i think that's something that lakari was definitely exploring here with these spies i i think you're that's an astute point right that that we're trying to get to uh that, that this movie i think successfully distills the morality from the mechanics you know that this that this is a job this is an entire sort of echelon that uh, exists for supporting a mechanical argument in politics or a political argument and and i think that's that ends up being the scariest part of the movie right because you end up with these people who um you know who are so disconnected from the people whose lives they're trying to affect because of how because of the job that they have just been told to shoulder and you get that that feeling through Lemus in a number of ways. I mean, he never he never exhibits any sort of exuberance for doing the job. Like he's never thrilled <laughs> about what he wants to do. He's told he has to go just get drunk and be upset about you know about his life choices. Uh, and it feels like he's not really doesn't really have to bury himself in the part <laughs> to communicate that. <laughs> that was another question I had. How much is Lemus actually playing a role here? Has he become so bitter toward his role that he's essentially the role that he's playing? And I think that's well, that a very my take point. on it, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I it, mean that, it definitely feels that way. I mean, there are times where they're talking about it, and I feel like, okay, now I'm seeing cracks here, and I'm seeing him, I'm seeing the the actor, the spy underneath the role. But but I think so much of it is just this is him. I think that he's, I think I don't know. I I feel like there was a point where he and and the role that he plays were probably pretty far apart. But I. 
I don't know. I felt like his his character um, over time had kind of grown bitter with all the deaths from all of his people that he'd been trying to protect and who he had been in charge of. And he had essentially grown into exactly what this role was, which I thought was really interesting. I think that's a really interesting point and a, and a great observation. And, and I think it it matters where Jolica decided to place us in the timeline of of our spy's career, right? We get him at a very cynical time. And I'm curious in the book, if we get more of his life, if we get to see how he transformed, I have a hard time believing that he jumped into the role of, you know, international espionage without some of that wide-eyed ideology uh, still in the bag or still in the can. He has none of it here. Well, it it starts in the same point where he loses his uh, best double agent right out of the gate. Like that's the very okay. first thing that happens. My Do understanding you think that is that was was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. That that was the thing that really caused him to to go cynical like that. I I mean I do feel like it it uh, had been building, and I think that that was uh, you know certainly. A point that it hit. And, you know, I think, I don't know, I, I felt like by the time he's actually playing the role of the drunk, bitter man, and he's taking jobs at the library and all this sort of stuff, I felt like he was in a point in that particular place where, you know, while he was there, it just kind of everything spiraled down until he was living his his own role. And that's that's part of the artfulness of the character, right? How the character is portrayed. It's one of the things I find so intriguing about this because it makes the climax of the movie, for me, incredibly rewarding and deeply confusing. Uh, because I, I'm, I'm, my head is not quite where Lemus's is. It still comes as a, as a surprise when he's sitting on that wall and he has to make that choice or he is, he's choosing to make that choice, right. Uh, of, of what to do next. And I'm, I really want, I, maybe we don't have to talk about that right now, but I'm, I'm, well, very I think we should. And I, think, on that. I think that goes to a few other of the big questions I have. One is about loyalty okay. and, you know, I mean, he is in a, role that requires people to be loyal to the organization they work for, to be loyal to the ideology that they're all preaching, more so, as it seems, to the uh, than to the principles and, and the people within it. In fact, I think you could argue that control, and even on the other side, Munt and Fiedler, they're more loyal to their organization and the ideologies than they are to the people around them. You know, I, I think control is ha- is fine if somebody has to die, you know, in order to support the organization. And, um, I, but I think that the spies really have to be loyal to their organizations. And this is a story all about loyalty versus betrayal. You know, all these, you know, this person's a spy, a double agent, and this person's a triple agent, and all this sort of stuff. And, and I found it to be really interesting, kind of the whole idea of loyalty. And that's what I think was really interesting about Nan. And I think this goes to another point I had about this whole idea of being alienated and and finding connections. And this whole world, I mean, it's in the title, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. This cold is like being a spy out into this kind of this cold world where everything's impersonal, you're disconnected. It's the life of a spy. You have to live that in order to really get by because you're constantly having to fake everything. You have to, you know, be, you know, you have to, you know, close yourself off if somebody you care about is caught or is killed 
And I think that is really interesting, especially as then we meet Nan, who really becomes the warmth. And it's interesting because I, I was thinking about the title for a while. I'm like, he never really comes in from the cold. You know, he's he's always out there. But then I'm like, you know what? But he connects with Nan. And at the end of the film, he, this is a guy who who chooses warmth, who chooses people over the organization finally. And he comes in from the cold. He leaves that to go to this personal connection that he's created and chooses to stay with Nan, this woman, rather than the organization. And so he is the spy who came in from the cold, and so they kill him. I thought that was really kind of, really uh, interesting. And I, I don't think I'd ever really thought about that very much, but um, I don't know, just really kind of piecing the title together this time it really hit me. I guess the challenge I have with it is that he has enough time to sit on the wall and look down at her dead and still chooses to climb down the ladder on her side. I I guess that is the the reflection is that you know he he so deeply wants to be out of this the spy factory, the spy business that it's worth it for him to to you know choose death in the face yeah. of climbing down on the other side and and living but having to live in the mechanics. Yeah, of, I think that's exactly because he knows he'll just be a cog in it. He knows yeah. that they don't care about him. They don't care about anyone. They've just proved it by killing her. Um, and I think that it puts him into a position where he would rather at this point prefer to be loyal to her, the warmth, the the humanity. And I think that's it's his way of saying, I choose humanity over all of this, even though he knows it's his death. And because he knows she's dead, he knows he'll die by doing so. Like he's he's choosing to die right there because right, he's right. he's he's making a statement saying, I choose life, uh, you know, when I, life, not he's going to live, but life, humanity, the all the the all that it means rather than this insane uh, mechanism that is getting us nowhere. And so for me, I mean, it's when he makes that choice, I, I guess I just didn't have any question about it. It just it was it became a very obvious um, choice for him to make. And I was really um, I don't know, I guess it's as depressing as it is. It's an exciting choice to be made in a film like this. Well, I, I agree with you, and I'm I'm certainly not saying I disagree with it. It just it, whenever I see a sequence where a, our protagonist commits that sort of death by death by cop, death by you know guard, death by whatever, I, I find that jarring enough that I, it takes me a while to parse it, like to figure sure. out why, why is that she was already dead. That like, is there really no way for you to get out of this mechanic? It makes me go into that loop and, and I need sort of a pattern interrupt uh, to get to the other side of it, because I, it is I, I it is an incredibly powerful climax of the film. Uh, and one that uh, I was surprised. Again, I've seen the movie before and I've really enjoyed <laughs> the movie and it still surprises me. I still think as they have that that close up on his face uh, at the very end, I think maybe this time, maybe this time he's just going to roll on <laughs> over. It'll be done. Uh, incredibly powerful and an incredibly powerful performance. Truly is. I mean, Richard Burton is, uh, he really embodies this tragic figure so well throughout, For whether it's the, the drunk, bitter version or the more caring version when he's connecting with Nan or the spy as he's trying to puzzle pieces together. I just, I really think he captured the essence of the role just magnificently. Where was this in his career? 
What did he, this, he was so young, such a young buck, 1965. Yeah, yeah. This was the same year that he did uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, that's right. He was so handsome. Big time for him, yeah. Yeah, this was a good time for him. Uh, well, such a, a beautiful portrayal. And, uh, you know, opposite Nan, who is delightful, um, played by... Claire Bloom. Really should have copied the names in. <laughs> played by Claire Bloom. She's is uh, delightful. Um, sure, her and, character in the book is named Liz. Um, I believe it's, what is it, Liz? I looked this up, but I don't have it now. Um, Liz Gold was the character's name in the book. But the producers uh, were concerned that uh, there would be some confusion in the media with uh, Burton's then-wife, Elizabeth Taylor. So they didn't uh, <laughs> want another Liz in his life, so they opted to change her name to Nan. I don't know why they couldn't keep the last name, but uh, first name definitely they felt that's funny. Reason to change it, yeah. I I really like her character. It's a, it's a, a fascinating uh, relationship, and it's one that took me a while to figure out: is this real? What is real about this relationship? I was, I guess, when I watch these movies, I'm always, I feel like I'm, I'm sort of trained to look around whatever next corner there is, and uh, I, I started not trusting her in the scenario because why would she want to be in a relationship with him at all? He was well, I think that it's it's an interesting point, and uh, I am am curious about how it evolves in the novel if there's a lot more relationship and we really mm -hmm. get a chance to see kind of the back and forth of it. Clearly, there's a period of time while he is in this particular job at the library before he gets into this uh, this final role that he has working uh, kind of as the uh, as the spy who is um, um, defecting. That's the word. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the the movie kind of has to condense some of that time. So I'm curious about how the book does it, because I felt like the relationship is a little quick, but it didn't really bug me. I felt like they were two lost people who were kind of struggling with finding connections in their life. You know, she seemed like an unhappy person who was stuck working in this in this uh, library job that she had and just was kind of going along with it. I, I didn't really have any issues with the way that it played out largely. I think that it worked for me. I think that was interesting were the ways that they chose to kind of set up her character as potentially more. Like we do have a moment when Smiley comes over to talk to her and goes inside and that's all we see. So we're like, okay, so what happened with that? And then we find out she was, uh, when she goes back to work, she was invited to go to the other side of the wall, to the east side of the, of the uh, Berlin Wall, to have a meeting with these communists and everything. And so you're getting a sense that there's something going on. So my question as she's going through all this is, okay, is she perhaps a spy? And that's what I find really interesting about the way they set up her character, which pretty much ends when you see her show up at the tribunal, at the hearing that they're having. And she seems really confused. The way that they speak to her, clearly she's not in the know. And so by that point, I'm like, okay, so she just was a pawn 
that was duped by essentially both sides that kind of led her to this. It sounded like Smiley only appeared at her house so that the people watching it could see him appear at her house and assume that she was involved, and uh, which I thought was really interesting. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and then they used this whole ruse to get her over there so that they can get her to be a part of this tribunal. I found it to be really interesting the way that they played her throughout, but I think it's interesting the way that LeCarre also plays her um, and makes us read more into her character. Totally, and I think her character setup is is perfect because he he writes her as a young ingenue communist, that she is a wide-eyed idealist, and that is just enough doubt it's just enough doubt when he starts playing um playing some of those more sort of insidious strings uh, about her character and her level of involvement when i believe ultimately that she was just a wide-eyed communist idealist and she wanted to go to the other side she wanted to experience it she had all of these motivations and it made it uh, again mechanically way too easy for her to be used as a pawn in this particular gambit. And it's really tragic because I think that's the perfect example of seeing how these sides are willing to use people as pawns. You know, they set up this whole thing to bring her over there to use her as a part of this whole elaborate scheme that, that control has put together just to keep his, uh, his double agent Munt safe. And Munt is like the the perfect example of the worst kind of person in all of this. He is a former Nazi who's converted to communism to kind of keep safe. And now, because he was caught in England, he is now working as double agent again to keep safe. And everything that he does is just like the the worst things that could that he could do just to keep his you know, kind of protect his own skin. And I find him to be the most interesting character. And the fact that Control is so willing to protect him, and that's what I think was so interesting, I mean, especially in context of thinking about this story when it came out, and I think the book came out in, um, what was it, 1963, so just a couple years before the movie, pretty fresh into the Cold War after uh, World War II when the Nazis were a much more prominent uh, peace in Europe. And here you have this story about the Cold War where England is saving the Nazi and killing the Jew in order to kind of keep things moving the way they are. And I was like, wow, that is pretty brazen of LeCarrie to put that together in the novel. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And Peter Van Eyck is a just a dastardly looking munt. I want to punch him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> he is he really is fantastic uh, just the way that he he acts and uh, performs it just he carries that role really well right from the start when he comes in and he smacks uh, Lemus upside the head yeah. just yeah just great all the way through well and and the the final shot of him as he's leaving the courtroom it's a close up on his face and you're not quite sure where he's looking and we're tight on him as he takes a few steps. And I'm not sure, is he going to lean in and grab somebody? You can't quite tell what he's going to do and it just gets closer and closer. And then he walks out of frame and is replaced by Lemus's face and it's close on Lemus, close on Lemus. And in the background, you see there she is blurred out 
thanks to that beautiful soft depth of field and you see guards come over and take her out just as they arrest her i mean that whole that whole mechanic of the three people to see what sort of what happens but obscured just enough uh is so powerful and so luscious and long uh it's just a a great way to say goodbye after the ultimate sort of betrayal yeah, I I loved the way that they shot that. It was just beautifully constructed. I mean, in a film with a lot of nice scene construction mm-hmm. and a lot of nice shots, the way that the camera moves, very still, long takes, just a lot of magnificent camera work that worked beautifully throughout. I was really impressed with, um, that was Oswald Morris, who was the cinematographer here. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a, a very soft touch. I don't know much about uh, Martin writ i don't think but actually before we get into that can we can you share a few words of of fondness for our man uh, oscar Werner as fiedler oh yeah i mean just another brilliant performance here i mean and somebody else i think who does a great job of kind of playing um you know as as i i, I guess we don't see him so much as as kind of the um the double agent sort of person but the way that he reacts initially to uh, to Lemus when he meets him and kind of befriends Lemus and then is so against Munt. And it's so interesting to kind of see the way that all of that plays out as you realize that he's just, he's totally being duped right here through this whole process. He does a great job, just a great job at this role. Oh, I, I think he does too. And that turn in the courtroom is is a perfect turn uh, as he realized that he's as, that he's being duped. Uh, he has been duped and he's being betrayed by the guy he's looking at uh, after such really sort of generous handling over the course of this sort of indeterminate amount of time in this country house, you know, going for walks and telling stories. And uh, you you've actually feel like he's, his ideology is sort of uh, it, it's sort of making inroads and they're finding something of a relationship. I thought it was very powerful. And Oscar yeah, Werner yeah. was just great. I haven't seen him in much, but I uh, I know he was in uh, Jules et Jim, the mm-hmm. uh, Francois Truffaut film, uh, I think just a few years before this. And just after this, Fahrenheit 451, another Truffaut. Yeah. Um, I could like I had to look in the credits because I forgot who he was. I kept thinking he was a, a young uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> oh, there's a little Alec Guinness in him. A little bit of Alec Guinness in him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, Martin Ritt. Have you seen HUD? HUD was that Paul Norma Newman? Ray? Norma Ray. Norma Ray. Totally seen Norma HUD, Ray. HUD is yep. Paul Newman. Yep. HUD's a fantastic one. That's the one where they have Cross to kill Creek. all the cows at the end. Yeah. Cro- yeah right. uh, Murphy's Romance, Stanley and Iris, Nuts with Barbara Streisand. No. Uh, he's done, he's he's a pretty, he's a, a pretty lengthy career. He was somebody who was caught up in the whole um, uh, blacklist. I don't think he was actually named, but he was mentioned in a newsletter and he was. I mean, he was kind of on the communist side of things. He kind of had that um, political ideology. And I think that probably partly also led to his interest in this particular story. He did finally get blacklisted um, from the TV industry when it was a grocer charged him with donating money to communist China in 1951. And so he ended up teaching at the actor's studio for quite a while. And uh, then he was able to kind of get himself 
back out of that whole mess. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a frustrating thing for anyone to have to deal with. It is, you know, he was a, he was originally a theater guy and, um, was one of the, uh, part of the, the WPA era, uh, sort of federal theater project under Roosevelt. And so he was in there with, um, Arthur Miller and, and crew, um, and they were a very happy federal theater project. And he is, he says, you know, I, I'm only going to be happy in the theater and, uh, you know. Then he found the camera. He did. He did a number of projects with Paul Newman, um, along with Joanne Woodward um, as well. So they they worked quite a bit, I think, on uh, the Long Hot Summer, Sound of the Fury. Um, I think he did Paris Blues with them. Um, HUD, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, that may be all. Uh, oh, and Ombre. So he did he did quite a few with those guys. And um as far as this film goes, I don't think he worked with Richard Burton again. Richard Burton, he had a hard time working with Richard Burton because Richard Burton is, you know, he's a big personality and he drank a lot. <laughs> and it was rather um rather irritable with a lot of stuff and and got on his case quite a bit. And so Rit actually called Le Carre in and asked him if he would just kind of hang out on set and kind of be a person to be kind of uh, um, Burton's sounding board and his drinking buddy, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that helped him get through the project, which I think is kind of funny. So it's, I, I, we've got some good history and I, I love that I've seen some Martin written movies. What is your sense of, of uh, what he, of any sort of consistency, like tone, tonal consistency that he brings across these movies to you? Is he, does, should we be working up an auteur name for him? Um, how about, uh, Ritter, Riddish, <laughs> Riddish, Riddish, Riddist. it's the Riddist. <laughs> it's the Riddist. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I, ha- I would have to see more of his films, but yeah. I would say the ones that I have seen definitely feel like there's a little bit of, uh, politi- politics in there. I think he likes those stories. Norma Ray for sure. This yeah. film for sure. Uh, HUD, I recall there being some, but gosh, I, I, can't remember that well. I just, um, I think that's more about father and son and uh, kind of the uh, the dealing with their ranch and stuff. I don't think there was as much in the world of politics, but it's a great movie to check out. I don't know. I'm going to have to check out more of his films, and then I guess we can decide yeah. if, it, if he really is the Riddest. <laughs> Outstanding. I love that we yes. have another project. That's right. Paul Dane is one of the writers who adapted this book. We talked to we we talked about him a little bit when we were talking about our Planet of the Apes series because That's he right. was involved in a number of the in I guess all of the sequels, not in the original, but in Beneath Escape, Conquest, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. You can see you can see a lot of apes in Spy. A lot of <laughs> a lot of apes. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> there's there's no real clear uh, through line from one to the other, but certainly. It's <laughs> uh, funny. Yeah, he co-wrote it with Guy Trosper. And I don't believe we've ever talked about Guy Trosper before. I, do, I, don't, I think that I don't is think a new his, name for us. Yeah, I don't think his, uh, his credit list is quite as lengthy. So Guy Trosper, this was actually his last screenplay before he died uh, in 1963. So he must have been working on it 
I don't it, know. He must have been working on it uh, with Paul Dane, um, and then he died, and then Paul Dane finished it, yeah. and because uh, he did posthumously receive an Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America for this script. We should say that you know, Trosper, he's he is the pen behind movies that we've seen, uh, Birdman of Alcatraz and uh, Pride of St. Louis, um, and uh, uh, let's see what else, uh, Jailhouse Rock. Uh, there, there are a number of films in here that are, are familiar to me, but, um, we just haven't talked about him. Yeah. Right. Right. All right. We should just mention, I, I mentioned Oswald Morris, the cinematographer, um, briefly, yeah. we should just mention that this film, there wasn't really a huge need to necessarily shoot it in black and white, but Martin Ritt, when he approached the project felt that that would be right for the telling of the story because he really liked the noir qualities that the story had kind of that tragic darkness that kind of this film exudes and Oswald uh, really kind of felt like that was what drew him to it. He didn't think that he would have done it if it hadn't been shot in black and white, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think that's really interesting. And in fact, I that struck me as I was watching that beautiful opening sequence. And yeah, that, that two and a half minute opening shot. Yeah, it, it is just wonderful. Uh, and uh, it gives us this this fantastic sort of tour of the border facility. And the, my first thought was, see, the samurai should have watched this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you are just set on that. It gave me exactly the feeling I wanted, right? It gave me exactly the sense I wanted. They had a choice, and I think they chose rightly. Wow, you're like the uh, the guy at the end of Indiana Jones and in the Last Crusade. I'm exactly like Deciding. that guy, Andy. I'm you exact, have chosen. I use that the samurai, all the time. You have chosen poorly. Poorly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, right. Can we talk just briefly about the music? Yes, we and should. How amazing it is! It's a great score. Soul Kaplan did the uh, music. It, it just feels very bluesy, very just kind of down and out. It fits so perfectly with everything going on here. It is so good, and it is uh, you know it it reminds me like there, this is one of those scores that it feels to me like so many other composers have riffed uh because for specifically for spy like tones right it just has this this the wonderful lead horn uh it it reminds me so much of jerry goldsmith right i mean of course i'm i'm thinking of the russia house which is one of my very favorite scores of all time and um uh, this was i mean i i could listen to them interchangeably and and not see where the borders are i think it's just a a beautiful thing but it also works so perfectly with the visuals and the, again that bluesy tone and that swing to it, it it is a curious score it is a score that's always asking questions it's making you like think what could happen next like this guy is always threatened and um i i was just deeply moved by it it's what i'm i'm very excited to just even just play the movie just for the the sound yeah right right it's a great piece of music. I just love the way that it unfolds throughout. It just feels so perfect for it from beginning to end. I really enjoy it. Uh, yeah, Sol Kaplan was another person who had been blacklisted. Um, it's just, you know, it's it was that time, man. It was a rough time in the yeah. in the 40s or in the 50s, I guess, when, when people were getting blacklisted and everything. 
um, very difficult, very difficult. And he, um, I, I think that, I don't know how long the period was that he wasn't working. I think it was, uh, looks like it was about three or four years. So um, I'm glad he was able to get back on it and keep doing some more music, including this one. Do you uh, have any other particular Soul Kaplan uh, uh, scores that you're very excited about? You know, I don't. Looking through the list of scores that he has done, I don't. I haven't actually seen any of the other movies that he has uh, worked on. It, which it's is, funny. I mean, it's he's got. I mean, he's got credits like some some soundtrack credits that uh, I, I'm curious about. What has he written that ended up on the Coneheads soundtrack in 1993, for example, at, three years after he died? Um, I, that that I find moving. He was yeah, a composer always, on Star yeah. Trek: The Original Series. He did. He composed yeah. a couple episodes. I, I think the the what's the big one that everyone always references? The Menagerie. No, The Enemy Within. That's oh. what I'm thinking. Of. Isn't that one of the top episodes that people always talk about? Probably. Yes, I think you're right. I think it is. But I I don't. I'm not. I've seen them all. I'm not a student of them. We should bring up the fact that it was edited by Anthony Harvey. And Anthony Harvey, I like when a film has a lot of like long shots for scenes to kind of play out and the editor and the director let them play out. But we should mention that, I mean, he is an editor that we have, uh, we've talked about projects that he's worked on before because he worked with Kubrick for a couple of films, Lolita, which we haven't talked about, but Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which he did um, edit and we did talk about on this show. And then he is uh, an interesting kind of, he made an interesting shift very shortly after this. He directed a couple, or he he edited a couple other films after this, but largely he switched over and became a director. And we talked about him when we did The Lion in Winter, which he directed. It, it's actually funny to look back at The Lion in Winter after seeing this movie and, and see it as kind of an editor's film, you know? Um you, you get uh, uh, some of those same it's actually there may be even more continuity between uh, the the tone of um, his work in the editing chair and that movie as a director for Anthony Harvey than even um, you know what I have a memory of in terms of Martin Ritz consistency film over film um, because you get some of those same sort of love of of long shots, of lingering shots, of cutting at, at sort of very precise times and in in motion and using uh, motion across the frame in a particularly unique way. Um, I I think he's uh, an editor's director for sure. Yeah, and I think editing is is definitely a role where editors really learn how to tell a story and what's necessary yeah. and what's not. So I think. When editors transition to directing, which I don't think happens that frequently, uh, at least I can't think of that many prominent editors who then switched over other than um, the big one whose name is totally eluding me right now, but who directed Star Trek The Motion Picture and edited Citizen Kane. Robert Wise. There's a good example. Somebody who went from Citizen Kane to Star Trek The Motion Picture. Interesting. And many other great films. But mostly just those two. (laughs) That's it. That's it. All the rest. Just like Spike Lee, he only had three great films, and the rest is just <laughs> trash. 
just jumping back real quick to the the writers and just the nature of a script like this. And this is something I think will be interesting to explore as we continue these uh, these films in this particular series is how complicated John Lacare's stories are because this is there's a lot going on here and you really have to track who's who, you know, who's related to uh, each person, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and kind of the nature of their relationships because it changes pretty frequently. And as we get into, and I haven't seen the little drummer girl, so that'll be an interesting one to jump into, but certainly Tinker Taylor soldier spy, that's, that's pretty convoluted. And so I'm actually hoping before we get to that one, I'm hoping to kind of plow through the whole, um, BBC mini series with, um, with Alec Guinness, oh, just yeah. to kind of uh, compare that one. I haven't read any of these books, but um, I do want to at least have that to compare and just see how well the compression worked. But I think I think the screenwriters in this particular case did a good job in kind of condensing the story. It all makes sense, but you do want to kind of pay attention and track it. It's it's not as complicated as Tinker Taylor, as I recall, but still, it's there's a lot going on here. This this central character and part of the the book is uh, that or at least the book falls in a series uh, that right, is right. around George Smiley, uh, and uh, that's a, a pretty central fictional character from uh, Jolica. Uh, he was one of those career intelligence officers, uh, and he's been in. Let's see. Call for the Dead, A Murder of Quality, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, The Honorable Schoolboy, and Smiley's People, and a supporting character here, uh, along with In the Looking Glass and The Secret Pilgrim and A Legacy of Spies. So we only get just a dash of him, but he is still uh, part of the the George Smiley narrative universe. Uh, do you do you have any greater understanding of of Smiley and where he uh, falls into? Lakari's work? You know, I don't think I do, but I I actually had forgotten that he's actually a character in this film. Yeah. And when he popped up, I'm like, oh, <laughs> there's Smiley. How funny uh, to see him popping up here because he is such a prominent character in so many of uh, Lakari's other, other works. And so it was nice to see him, albeit a very small role, but still it was nice to see him kind of uh, pop up. And it's interesting, Lakari actually made this character, he said, as an intentional foil to James Bond, a character who he believed depicted an inaccurate and damaging version of espionage life. He made him short, overweight, balding, bespectacled, polite, self-effacing, and frequently allowed others to mistreat him. And uh, all of it masks all of the stuff that he has going on underneath his inner cunning, his excellent memory, his mastery of tradecraft, and his occasional ruthlessness. I think that's uh, a very interesting way to kind of spin a spy based because of the way that James Bond played. And I think this film, and I'm sure this whole (laughs) series, is really going to be a very uh, antithetical James Bond that we look at. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, I I just love the idea of Smiley as this guy that everyone underestimates uh, and yet is is a, a master sort of espionage tradesman. And, and James Bond is this guy that no one underestimates because right? <laughs> he's right. handsome and charming and debonair and rich and <laughs> all of that. 
All uh, of so that. it'll be interesting, and and I regret a little bit that we're not doing a a third smiley something uh, because uh, I do. I, I, I want to explore this character. So I might see if I can actually get through the book, uh, Tinker Taylor, before we, we get through it. I'll find the audio book and listen to it on 9X. Nine, nine well, he has appeared here in this film. Mm-hmm. The film adaptation of The Deadly Affair has been made called... Uh, it, that, that film was an adaptation of Call for the Dead. James right. Mason plays Smiley there. there uh, he was actually dropped when they made a film adaptation of Looking Glass War, so don't bother with that one okay. from 1969. Noted. And then, of course, Gary Oldman in the uh, 2011 film that we'll yeah. be talking about. Right. That's the films. I mean, he's been in TV a couple other th- times. And, Radio shows, comics, I and mean, he's definitely a a guy who's popped up quite a bit. Well, and I think Alec Guinness was was a famous portrayal of him, right? In Smiley's People. Oh, he's he's probably the most yeah. famous because of the the uh, TV series that yeah. he appeared in for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in 1979 and Smiley's People 1982. Yeah. Those were both part of the Carla trilogy, which is um, a set of stories where he is the protagonist they did not do the third one which is the honorable school no sorry the middle one um the honorable schoolboy because i guess a lot of it takes place in uh in indochina Mm. and because of the cost of going to film that they opted to not do that second book jolica just said it in london man said it in london and you're (laughs) fine think about those things how to do it awards season? Pretty well for itself. It had 10 wins with five other nominations. At the Academy Awards, Richard Burton was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Lee Marvin in Cat Baloo, and also Best Art Direction and Set Decoration Black and White, but lost to the film Ship of Fools. At the Golden Globes, Oscar Werner won for Best Supporting Actor. At the BAFTAs, it won for Best British Art Direction Black and White, Best British Cinem- Cinematography Black and White, and Best British Film. Um, oh, and also Richard Burton. He won for this, and it was one of those co-awards. He won for this and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It was nominated for Best Film from Any Source, but lost to Who's Afraid of G- Virginia Woolf. And Oscar Werner was nominated for Best Foreign Actor, but lost to Rod Steiger in The Pawnbroker. At the British Society of Cinematographers, won for Best Cinematography. Richard Burton won the Best Foreign Actor at the David D. Donatello's. It won Best Motion Picture at the Edgar Allan Poe Awards. Richard Burton won Dramatic Performance by a Male at the Laurel Awards. The National Board of Review put on the top 10 list. And the WGA uh, was nominated for Best Written American Drama, but it lost to The Pawnbroker. Have you seen The Pawnbroker? I have. It's a good movie. I have not seen it. Check it out. I really liked it. And Rod Steiger is fantastic in it. So I have a hard time arguing that that he... um, that Oscar Werner lost to him for best foreign actor at the BAFTAs. How about at the box office? Did it, uh, did it do okay? You know, here is another one with no budget information to speak of. Unfortunately, uh, Martin Ritz spy thriller did open December 16th, 1965 opposite battle of the bulge. The movie did well for itself, earning 7.6 million at the domestic box office or 61.8 million in today's dollars. I couldn't find anything on how it did internationally. Again, sometimes these old films just do not have stuff available. It's frustrating. Well, uh, e- even so, I think it's um, uh, it was a, a great experience watching this one again. Uh, I'm I'm curious uh, how it's going to 
hash out my uh, my feeling about it. it. It's it's good. I I'm I'm struggling with that that five star mark. I'm looking forward to a good ranking where you can you can set me straight. I notoriously fail at that, so I guess we'll see how we do. <laughs> All right. Head over to, there we go. Head over to flickjump.com oh, slash the next reel. You'll see the list of movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes, you tap the word flick chart, it will uh, actually show you this exact movie where you can add it to your catalog and see how it stands up to ours. First up, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or Mad Max. It's absolutely The Spy Who Came In From yeah, The Cold spy for me. Who came in from the cold. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or Raise the Red Lantern. Raise the Red Lantern. It's been quite a block lately, but it is The Spy Who Came In From The Cold for me. Seriously? Oh, 100%. Okay, well, let's, in case let's In case it. I didn't sell it enough in this conversation, I really love this film. This is <laughs> an easy five-star film for me. Okay. It's, it's like one of my top spy films. I just think it's so classy, clean, uh, tragic. Andy, I'm going to give messaging. it to you. That was look what you just did. You just swayed me with that impassioned plea. <laughs> wow, I didn't And your think eyes that was got happen. really big for a minute there. I mean, you just really <laughs> thought I was talking to Popped George my just skull. smiley right now. <laughs> All right. Well, then that takes it. Um The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or Star Trek 2: The Wrath of Khan. Star Trek 2. This is a real tough one. I uh but I'll say Star Trek 2. Right. I would honestly like want to go to my chart to see where those two are ranked because I'm like, gosh, that's a that's an interesting one. Like, which one would I rank higher? I probably would rank the spy who came in from the cold higher, but I don't know. It is Star Trek two. It's one of those like on any given day I could flip flop. Yeah, yeah. All right, the spy who came in from the cold or the shining. Oh, the spy I, who came in from the cold for me. Really. I thought that would be harder for you. I really did. That was not hard for me. No. Is there another Kubrick's like Dr. Strangelove? Definitely. But not yeah, I'm, uh, I'll go spy on this one. Okay. The spy who came in from the cold or the Fisher King. The Fisher King. Ooh. It's been wow. a long I'll time since King. that one's come up. Yeah. God, now I want to watch it again. The spy who came in from the cold or Kramer versus Kramer. Spy who came in oh, from the cold. Boy, that's a good film. I'm going to say spy who came in from the cold. Spy came in from the cold or National Lampoon's vacation. <laughs> How did we I mean, get to that matchup? Here oh. I'll say vacation. Even though Spy is probably the better film, but vacation is just like a classic. It's burned into my brain. Are you serious right now? I, and I know you're not because you have more issues with vacation and I don't know how we did that when we did our show. All of a sudden now you hate vacation. That is not, I mean, come on. <laughs> I just feel like I'm I, I'm fine. I'm fine flip flopping on this one. If you really, I'm yeah, a spy. Okay, I'll I'll flip flop to spy just for you because you flip flopped for me earlier. <laughs> the spy who came in for the cold or the French Connection. <gasps> French Connection. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say French Connection. That is a tough one, man. Yeah, it is. Not that tough. But you did this fine. film did really well for itself. Spy Who Came In From The Cold ended up in spot 73 on our chart. 73 out of 445, which puts it at an 84%. Much too low for my taste. That is, that's funny. I, I mean, I get it. And I feel like we didn't go to the mat at all, right? I mean, we agreed on everything with the exception of those two flip-flops. Yes. Which were in the right. After all, uh, 
<laughs> but this thing also got blasted on my own chart. How did it do on yours? Oh, it did well. It landed in spot 119 at a 4307, which is a 97%. Wow. Very high, very high. So I uh, am... This is, this is an easy one for me to watch and love. It's just, I just find it to be perfectly done. I am cruising at 1441 movies, and this one landed at 338. It yeah. ran into things that I just, I couldn't. I just couldn't, Andy. And that puts it at 77%. Ouch. I know. Now, if I'm to go by the algorithm here over at letterbox.com slash next reel, this would be a, a four-star movie. I'm wary about, about the full five stars. I'm wary about that because I've been on a kind of a five-star run of late. I don't know if you noticed Spike this. Lee was pretty solid with our five stars. Well, in the film noir stuff right before yeah. that. The, the, you mean the, the French, French crime, crime. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Film noir. <laughs> There's film, French film in the French word, crime. in the title. <laughs> so I really, I really struggle with this. I'm assuming you're. This is because, this is because of all the back channel conversations about five star, all that, isn't it? Yeah, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I, I, wish I have could no just... qualms about giving five stars. If okay. I really love a film, I would give it five stars. Okay. Well. But if you want to give it, if you want to diminish the quality of this film, in what your heart. are you doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> you want to diminish the quality of the film. This is what we've turned to. No, I, I, of... I'm terrible. No. You, you, no, seriously, give it what you want. It's okay. It's okay. <sighs> I, think I, I think I can do it. I think I'm going to give it a five stars with you. Wow. I'm going to give okay. it a five stars. I'm with Andy. I think so. I just... <laughs> I really enjoy this movie. The thing is, I can't figure out where the stars would fall. Where would the stars fall, Andy? I don't know. Well, that's the question. And as long as I like, can't what? answer that, then shut I up, I mean, Pete. it seemed like you had issues at the ending, but, uh, but hopefully those are, you're... No, Andy. The, it would be much more accurate to say that the film had issues with me. <laughs> <laughs> I own I that. I, I didn't Richard get Burton it. looking through the screen at you. <laughs> It just took me a while to come to terms with it. I don't. I don't have issues with it. I didn't. I'm the dummy in this case. Look at you. This was a a great win for you. You really have uh, impacted I know, somehow. me. Somehow, yeah. Somehow I did. Okay. Didn't win it on uh, Les Samurai, but hey, I got it here. Yeah, certainly didn't it. win on 2001. Whew. No, I definitely won 2001. Yes, you did. Yes, mm -hmm. you did. Where do we go from here? We are going to be uh, jumping quite a bit in uh, in our series. We're going from 1965 to 19, I believe it's 82, with uh, George Roy Hill's film, The Little Drummer Girl. Oh, 1984, Little Drummer Girl, with uh, Diane Keaton. This is an adaptation I have never seen. I'm very curious about it to kind of get a sense of this story, which they are uh, adapting now to make a new version of it for, uh, I think, a TV miniseries. So I'm really curious about jumping into that one. Oh, and you know what? I didn't mention with this one, because his stories are so interesting and the sorts that are worth adapting, two of his sons, Simon and Stephen, made a production company called The Ink Factory back in 2010 to actually produce adaptations of their father's work. They produced Most Wanted Man, which was a few years ago with um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. They produced Our Kind of Trader and uh, The Night Manager and currently working on The Little Drummer Girl. Um, so, uh, yeah, forgot to mention all that. But they are actually looking at doing a new adaptation 
well, this is a few years ago. They uh, 2017, they started pre- uh, developing a limited series based on this book. So uh, hmm. it'll be curious to see if we end up with another version of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold at some point. Well, I can handle that. Yeah, I guess I could. I just, I love this one so much. Um, but I, knowing how much content is in his books, it would be interesting to see what they do with the miniseries. I'd be all over that, I think. That's my kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. I think I'm just kind Never. of a long format guy. Either way, I'm happy. Me too. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon, uh, yeah, they, they sort of did. At least we landed on Amazon, and we're staying there this time. We are. It's just it's been a rarity lately. Yeah. A lot of people have problems with the regional specificity of the DVDs that they've gotten here. Oh, regions. Real problem yeah, with great. regions. I don't know why we even have regions. Regions are dumb. Let's move on. Indeed. From regions. Indeed, yes. But we did find some near and around the bottom of the barrel that we are able to share. Uh, would you like to go first? Let's read them. Sure. I've got a one star by Hector. Hector says, dated. Does not hold up to time as some of the greats do. Burton looks to be phoning it in. Compared to Soldier Tinka Taylor Spy, this outing seems fabricated with very little research. <laughs> <laughs> to Soldier Tinker Taylor Spy. <laughs> oh dear! So much very little research. Yes, very little research. There's clearly no research Hector. in this. Unbelievable. I think uh, Hector is a spy himself. <laughs> I think so. Well, I I have a a one star from M. Lewis uh, from 2013 who says this is a great movie, completely spoiled by the ending. Uh, it's a little bit longer, so forgive me of that. This, I think this is interesting. This was a gripping story, superbly acted and well carried out. Sadly, the ending totally ruined the movie for me. Besides being sad, it's simply repugnant to everything I believe about life, and the plot device they used is, frankly, cheap and worn out. It's disappointing to see an otherwise great movie spoiled by such deep dramatics in the last 30 seconds. If you feel like life has some meaning and that standing for what's right is important, then skip this film. On the other hand, if you think we all just live and die, make worthless sacrifices for non-existent causes, count for nothing and mean even less, you'll like a movie like this to leave you feeling bleak, unimportant, dejected, insignificant, empty, and depressed. Enjoy. In short, this is a seriously twisted movie. I hope whoever wrote the story and produced the film eventually got the help they appear to have needed so badly. Okay. Wow. I'm just saying, in spite of the sort of narrative theatrics that they put in there, I, I kind of get where he's coming from. So it's, 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 it's gloomy. It's gloomy. It is. But I think that... <laughs> Look, no. I'm a five-star guy, Andy. I'm a five-star guy. I'm not defending this one-star tripe. I'm just saying, I get it. <laughs> you get it. Okay, I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. 
In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.